Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. Here's the thing, as we, as we begin, as we look at this section of Scripture, and the reason we're in these verses today, or, or rather I should say making our way all the way into chapter 22, is because this section I think really does go together and we need to consider it all, uh, all together, uh, even though we could take various sections and really just spend a lot of time there. I want us to see the bigger picture about what's happening here as Jesus is, is nearing the end of his earthly ministry. You know, we, we often say of, of church attendance, of those who, who are thinking about going to church or maybe do go to church, you may have heard it before that we say, hey, you know, come as you are, especially at Calvary Chapel, right? There's no sense of needing to have a particular attire on when you come. Uh, We just tell people, hey, come as you are. And this is true. This is a true statement. Uh, The church should be open to all to come and to seek after God. But here's the piece that should be said along with it that's often said less is that come as you are, but don't stay that way. You can come as you are, but if, if, if you're really giving your life to Christ, if you're really surrendering your life to Christ, then there, even as I prayed this morning, there should be change. There should be transformation that happens in your life. If you find yourself saying, man, I started to go to church a decade ago, and I've really not changed at all, well, that's a problem. There should be transformation in your life. You should really be evaluating, am I really living for Christ if there's been no transformation in my heart and in my mind? And we often struggle with this. We struggle with change. We struggle with the need to change because we struggle with authority. Because we struggle with bringing ourselves under the authority of Scripture. We struggle with surrendering ourselves to Christ because in our flesh we struggle with a great desire for independence. Though continually here we've been challenged to be dependent on Jesus, but that's a struggle for us. And we struggle in, in, in doing the things the way we want to do it. Because we're stubborn. You know, we can read in Scripture and think, as Scripture says, that you know, Israel was a stubborn people and go, oh yeah, they're so stubborn. Well, you are too. <laughs> we're all stubborn people. And, and, and what we've seen here, and what we've learned over and over again through the last several chapters of Matthew, this, this gospel that makes a clear case for Jesus of Nazareth as the true King of Kings, is that He is the one with authority. And in his authority, he desires for us to be humbly dependent on him and to surrender to his authority, to his way of doing things. The kingdom of heaven, as it were, is not what we get, it's not about us making it out to be the the kingdom that we want it to be. It's his kingdom. And if we want that kingdom, we need to have the king as well. We need to bring ourselves under authority to him. We don't get to come to him on our terms. We get to come to him on his terms. And here in Matthew, in chapter 21, Jesus now has just entered into Jerusalem for the final time in his earthly ministry. And we catch up with Jesus here as he enters into the temple, the place of religious authority of the day. And he begins to quite literally turn some things upside down. In verse 12, we see here, then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. 
So Jesus here goes into the temple, the very place where in the days of Solomon, the presence of the Lord was experienced. It's the house of God. It's the center of religious worship. And the Son of God goes into the house of God. And he enters into an open-air courtyard. This is where he's at. He goes into what is called the Court of the Gentiles. It's about a 35-acre courtyard that's really kind of the outermost place within the actual boundaries of the temple. And it was the place for the Gentiles to come who were seeking after and trusting in God. It was to be a place for all nations. You see, the, the, the fact is that, that God was for all people. Uh, from, the, from the beginning of time, He has truly been for all of His creation. That He desired that all would be saved, not just the Jewish people. And He desired that all would be saved. And, and really, this should not have been a revolutionary concept, concept, but because of pride, it had sort of become one. And so here, in the court of the Gentiles, there was something that was happening. It says here that Jesus drove out all those who bought and sold. Well, what, what, what was it that they were selling? Well, here in this Passover week, people were coming from all over. Jerusalem was beginning to swell with great numbers of people. And they were coming in to buy their Passover lamb or, uh, for sacrifice or other animals that they could afford if they couldn't afford a lamb in order that they might offer it to God. And, and rather than having other places where they could acquire the, the things necessary, the animals necessary for sacrifice, there were vendors that were there set up in the temple with approved animals, the best animals that could be sold then at higher amounts at the expense of the people. Think of, uh, I couldn't help but, but think of the various times we've gone to like an amusement park, right, or a water park. Anybody ever been to a water park? And, and by golly, if you go to the water park and you don't have the right bathing suit on, you know, if it has like some metal grommets, they say, we well, can't go down the slide in that, right? You're going to have to buy a new bathing suit, but no worries. We have them for sale in our gift shop. Enter in the $75 swimming suit, right? And you're like, no! Uh, and, and, and so, I mean, it's, it's a similar kind of concept, right? You have to have this one, and we'll sell it to you for this much. It says that Jesus came in and he drove out the money changers. And so you say, you see, people had to pay a temple tax. But lest the priests receive money uh, in the temple with Caesar's image on it, people needed to exchange their money for temple money often at a very unfair exchange rate. Think in this case of any number of things. The one that came to mind for me was, was like tickets for the rides at the state fair, right? You can't just pay for the ride. You have to go and you have to exchange your money for the special tickets, right? Now here's the thing. The temple, the place of worship, was in no way, in no way, shape, or form on the level of my examples, like a water park or a state fair, but the problem is, because of these efforts to make a buck, they'd sort of turned into such. They were making a mockery of God's house. And, and, and even more so then for the poor, and for the Gentiles in particular, who wanted to come to God to sacrifice and to worship Him, for all people who entered in, the way was cluttered and crowded with the things of the world. And Jesus says in verse 13, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer but you have made it a den of thieves. See, Jesus here refers to the prophet Isaiah first from Isaiah 56 verse 7 saying, His house is to be a house of prayer, 
This is what the, the house of God is to be. And the thing is, though, it's not mentioned here. I believe it's also mentioned in Mark. In Isaiah, it would go on to say that, that it's a house of prayer for all nations. That it was a place for all people. But instead, it has become, here Jesus also then referring to the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 7, verse 11, it's become a den of thieves. And so here Jesus begins to make quite a scene. And, and the thing is, is he's done this before. This isn't the first time that he's gone into the temple in this way and made this sort of scene. It's in John's gospel, in fact, that we find at the beginning of Jesus' ministry during a previous Passover week that Jesus had drove, no doubt, many of these same people out of the temple with a whip in hand. You see, Jesus was no wimp. Jesus was a man's man. He was willing to take charge and to stand for what is right. Jesus had a perfect understanding of when he was willing to let something go and when he was willing to say, oh no, this will not happen. And Jesus had an understanding of when he should not turn his back upon a foe, especially when there were those in need. And and as he did, as he begins to clean house, Look what immediately happens in verse 14. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. I can't help but think in this moment that some of those who were blind and lame said, thank you. We haven't been able to come in. We haven't been able to make our way in amongst the the crowds and the the way in which people are taken advantage of. And, And I also can't help but wonder, are the things of the world serving as an obstacle still in the church today? Do the poor and the blind and the lame have a place in the church? Or have our modern ministry gimmicks and programs polluted worship once again? So many ways in which different things from the world have begun to enter into the church again today. And we need to be so careful that we don't find ourselves turning the church into a den of thieves. And in verse 15, but when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? This word wonderful here is an interesting word choice, an interesting word to translate because they really didn't see what Jesus was doing as as wonderful. It was more that it was kind of an amazing act. It was sort of uh, awe-inspiring to them in that I can't believe that he's doing this. And for some saying, I can't believe he's doing this again. But Jesus says to them this time and he looks to them and he says, yes, I hear what they're saying. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. You see, Jesus here is quoting from Psalm chapter 8, verse 2. And so he says, in effect, yes. And from the mouths of children and the poor and the needy, we see here right worship. He says, they're coming in with right hearts. They're worshiping the right Lord, not you. And and I love what's happening here, albeit it's the last eight days of Jesus' earthly ministry. I mean, He is now, as He's always been, but increasingly clearer to the multitudes, a man on mission. In fact, we're going to hear next week, the disciples are going to say to Jesus clearly, you don't care what other people think. That's a refreshing thing. 
to see and to read about Jesus. And so then, at this point, Jesus leaves them, and in verse 17, we read that he went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. And in verse 18, it says, Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. You see, Jesus got hungry. He was fully God, but fully man. And in verse 19, and seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately, the fig tree withered away. You see, what we have to understand here as we look at this is with fig trees, some of you may be familiar, there are fig trees in our area, uh, that if you see leaves on a fig tree, there should also be evidence of fruit. If there's no leaves, you wouldn't expect to see fruit, but the fact that the leaves are there, you should at least see uh, evidence of what will become fruit, what will become figs. And so it seems here, Jesus being hungry, right, he comes to the tree and he's expecting to get some fruit, and uh, there, there's none available. And so uh, because there's no fruit on it, he curses it and it dies. And the disciples see this, verse 20, and it says that they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? I find that kind of funny because they've seen Jesus doing far more miraculous things than just this up to this point, but apparently this one sort of catches them off guard. Whoa, look at that. And, and so here the disciples are amazed by this seemingly quick interaction between Jesus and a fig tree. And, and, and I think to them it also, and to us too, could seem as if this is an interaction that's just prompted by Jesus being as the uh, word says, is he's hangry at this moment, right? It's that hunger and angry at the same time. You've experienced it before, right? And uh, it's like the Snickers commercials, right? And so you, you, might, you might look at this and think, is Jesus just, is he just throwing a tantrum? You know, is he just frustrated? It, no fruit and ah, curse you and die because he didn't get his breakfast? No, not at all. If we know anything about Jesus, we know that everything that he does has a purpose to it. And so you see, as we look at this, we must understand that Israel was often compared to the fig tree in Scripture. And what is happening here is Jesus is heading back. He's heading back to the temple now. And he's giving us a picture of the bigger picture, of what is occurring. Now, you might say, well, well what is that big picture? And I'd say to you, great question. Because the, the fig tree here is Israel, and, and it's Israel's religious leaders, and, and it's many of her people, and it's, it's the temple, it's the place where worship and sacrifice were supposed to be happening. And so like the fig tree, there was an outward sign of fruit. There were leaves on the tree, but there was no actual bearing of fruit. It was empty and dead, and because of that, it was good for nothing. And this is what Jesus was saying of Israel and of the work of the temple. Think about it for a moment. If you're taking notes today, you can just write, jot some of these verses down. In John, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 2.19, John 2.19, after Jesus had cleansed the temple for the first time, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And, and John, of course, tells us shortly after that that Jesus was speaking of his, his body. But Jesus, the Son of God, in a body, that's the incarnation, that's Emmanuel, God with us, 
His, his presence with us, no longer limited to the Holy of Holies. Because of, because of Jesus, we don't need to go to Jerusalem. We don't need to go to the Temple Mount in order to get close to God because Jesus has come, because His Holy Spirit has come. And so now He's with us, and He's in us, and He's upon us. He's empowered us, okay? So Jesus, even back then, was beginning to change the picture. They say it's, it's no longer about the temple, in Matthew, in chapter 12, verse 6, Matthew 12, 6, Jesus says of himself, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Referring to himself. And then as we look ahead a little bit to Jesus and his crucifixion, we'll find that in Matthew in chapter 27, specifically in verses 39 and 40, Jesus there hanging upon the cross, is mocked by those who pass by, saying to him, you, you, who destroy the temple and build it in three days, why don't you save yourself? But listen, though he's mocked in that moment, shortly thereafter in verse 51, as Jesus yields up his spirit, what does it say? But in that moment, as Jesus breathes his last breath on earth in that form, it says, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. And in this moment, in this incredible moment, we then see in verse 54 of Matthew 27, we see that the centurion and those that were with him, other Roman soldiers, not Jewish people, they look and they declare, truly, this was the Son of God. The temple, the place of the house of prayer for all nations, was now fulfilled in Jesus, paving the way for all people to come to God. You see, Jesus was destroying the temple, for he himself was fulfilling the work of the temple. And this would make a way for all to come to God and to truly worship Him so that, as Paul says in Galatians 3.28, write that one down, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then, as Paul says elsewhere in his letter to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3.16, what does he say about us then as believers? He says believers are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you Christian and so you see what's happening here when we say that Jesus is the fulfillment he's the fulfillment in so many ways and people were just missing it and so Jesus then looking at the disciples who are sort of marveling over his cursing of the fig tree he looks to them in verse 21 and he says assuredly I say to you if you have faith and do not doubt you will not only do what was done to the fig tree but also if you say to this mountain be removed and be cast into the sea it will be done and whatever things you ask in prayer believing you will receive. So Jesus here, knowing that they were marveling at this, really what he does here is he gives instruction to the group of them as a whole, saying, have faith. Have faith in what? In Jesus. He says, have faith in me. Essentially what he's communicating to them is pray and expect me to do great things. And listen, this is not support for some sort of name it and claim it philosophy like some people want to do. Take a verse out of context and use it as a proof text. Because Why do we know that? Because it's not consistent with the rest of Scripture. If I take just this passage and say, see, Jesus says if I, can, if I just believe it, I can have it. 
No, that's inconsistent with what we see elsewhere in Scripture. So what is this then? This is an exhortation to the disciples and I believe also then to the church today to be in prayer. To the church to be in prayer. For us to have faith in Jesus. For us to come come to Him in prayer expecting Him to do miraculous things. Believing that He'll do miraculous things. Now Jesus at this point then, after this interaction, He makes His way back to the temple. And he will remain in the temple until the beginning of chapter 24. Okay, so including today and then the next two weeks, just know Jesus is in the temple, okay? And what will ensue here is a bit of a theological slugfest where Jesus will land some pretty hefty blows on the religious leaders of the day. So we see that in verse 23, when he came into the temple the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? You see, oftentimes when we ourselves are challenged, told to do something, especially for those of you at a younger age, maybe your brother or your sister comes to you and says, hey, you need to do this, what do you say? Who said? Who said so? Under what authority? Right? Maybe you don't use those exact words. So it's not all that uncommon for somebody who's feeling a little frustrated, maybe that their authority is being threatened. What authority are you doing this under? And so here, this man from Nazareth, who's not a Pharisee, who's not a scribe, who's not even really a rabbi, though he's called as much by his disciples, and so who in their eyes, in the eyes of the Pharisees, is a nobody, yet who has caused this great stir and has come and begun cleaning house in the temple, who's now teaching with authority in the temple, they question saying, whose authority? Who said? And Jesus, who, who's intent now on continuing to clean house, looks to them in verse 24, and I love this, Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. He says, you want to ask me a question? I'm going to ask you one first. You answer mine, I'll answer yours. Verse 25, the baptism of John. Immediately they've got to be going, oh, not that guy again. John the Baptist. He says, the baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? I'll answer you if you answer me. And now this unexpected question, as they're having this spiritual slugfest, puts them back on their heels. Not a good place to be when they know another blow's coming. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, if, if we say from heaven, well, he will say to us, why then didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, well, we fear the, mul- the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, we don't know. You know, it's funny, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, tells us that the fear of the Lord, not the fear of man, is the beginning of wisdom. But these leaders and their fear of men cause them to plead ignorance. And so Jesus says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Oh, man. They thought they had him. But here's the wonderful thing. Jesus is not done. As for him, it's time to begin delivering the blows that will bring all of this down. He continues, verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons. So he begins to speak in parable. And he came to the first and said, Son, go, work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. 
Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? You see, if I say to one of my sons, Take the trash out, and he says, Sure, dad, but never does it. But the other one pitches a fit, but later does it. Which one was obedient? They looked at Jesus and they said to him, the first. And so you see, it's about obedience, right? You've heard that a few times as of late. It's about obedience. And here's what we need to recognize and what Jesus is beginning to show them. That for many, their beginning may have been a bit rough. And for others, maybe it was really strong. But it's ultimately about how you finish. Jesus says to them here, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors... Now, remember who Jesus is talking to here. He's talking to the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes. He says, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Verse 32, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. You see, this should be a wonderful encouragement to those of you with somewhat of a sketchy beginning. That rest assured as you have repented, as you've come to Christ, he says, you're in. You know, James in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, gives us a pretty thorough understanding of this idea of faith and works. James writes specifically in verse 14, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? This one makes us a little bit uncomfortable sometimes. But the fact of the matter is, friends, that you can sit here and say all you want that you believe. You can make a profession with your lips, but if your heart is far from him, like these Pharisees, and you don't actually live it out, that there's no fruit in your life, there's no change in your life, then are you really saved? You see, the way is open to those who repent, not to those who pretend. And you know, I can say that because that was me. Because that was me. Because that was my story. And so here, Jesus stuns them with a couple of little jabs. And and now, without even waiting on a response, he delivers another blow. In verse 33, he says, Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. In verse 37, then last of all he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And so they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. You see, throughout history, God, the owner of the vineyard, has sent his prophets to prepare the way. John being the chief of all, and they were all rejected. And now God sends his son. Surely they'll receive his son. But no, they seek to kill him also. 
Mark tells us as much in this parallel encounter that they were thinking and plotting how they might kill him. Verse 40, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, this is Jesus, he asks, what will he do to those vine dressers? And in verse 41, they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. They thought themselves wise in this moment, truly answering the question accurately. But you see, with this third blow, now with their their backs against the ropes, the Pharisees signal their own defeat as here, drawn into the story by the master storyteller, they say well that He will destroy them and give the vineyard to someone else. As Jesus says in verse 42, have you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. You see, Jesus was rejected by them. We know that. But He has also become the chief cornerstone. And then believers, Christian you today, members of His church, Not of Calvary Chapel, but His church, the capital C church. You've become living stones, as Peter writes, who are being built up for His glory. And so Jesus says in verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And indeed, with the temple destroyed both literally and figuratively God has given the vineyard to his church to a new nation a royal priesthood that is bearing its proper fruit for his name and for his kingdom and of of Jesus to those who fall on him though in in brokenness and in humility will be restored and will be built up, but to those on whom He falls will be crushed and ground to powder. And so you see the choice that was there before the Pharisees is the same choice that's before each of us. And verse 45, it says, Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard His parables, they perceived that He was speaking of them. You think? I can only imagine one of the Pharisees Elbow and the other one saying, hey, I think he's talking about us. right?" And so in this moment, they sought to lay hands on him. But once again, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. Now as we transition then into chapter 22, we'll consider just this first parable as we, wait, as we make our way towards communion. And we see at the beginning of the chapter, I love how it just says, and Jesus answered. Now presumably he was asked another question, but we're not necessarily given that question, so maybe not. Maybe this is just another blow. Say, hey, I've got, I've got more for you. Because remember, this is just chapter 22. We're going to go through all through 22 and all through 23, and this is going to be Jesus just pummeling these guys. And so he, he, he looks at them, and he says, as he spoke to them again by parables and said in verse 2, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king, that's God, who arranged the marriage for his son, that's Jesus, the the bridegroom, verse 3, and sent out his servants, the angels, to call those who were invited to the wedding. Angels, and and, and, and early on, in the case of Israel, it was, of course, the prophets as well, and, and they're not willing to come. 
And, and so those who aren't willing to come are, are those who reject Jesus. And in this case, it, it, it's Israel and, and her religious leaders. And so in verse 4, again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, I, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed and, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways. One to his own farm another to his business. The rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and, and killed them. And, and as we look at this, we must recognize that still today, there are those who receive the invitation, but in many cases, they're, they're too busy. Too busy to respond. Too preoccupied with their work. Too preoccupied with their life. Too preoccupied with their plans and the way they want to do things. And then, of course, there's others who are truly agitated by such a, uh, an invitation. They're hostile towards it, even taking the life, perhaps, of those who bring them the good news. But each of them, regardless of if I'm just too busy and I'm going to work or I'm going to take your life because I'm offended, have ultimately rejected him and have rejected his invitation. And so in verse 7, when the king heard about it, he was furious. Then he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and, and burned up their city. And you know, some look at this and they say, well, if this is God, then He must be a vengeful God. But, but think how in His continued grace and mercy, His willingness to continue to offer a free invitation that when rejected and when lives are taken, is there not come a point when justice is served if He truly is a just and righteous God? And so we know, especially as it pertains to the nation of Israel, that judgment did come. And it's come in many different forms, including in 70 A.D. when the temple would be completely and utterly destroyed. And so he sends out his, his armies to destroy those murders and burn up their city. And in verse 8, it, then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. And praise God, here he says, take the invitation to the Gentiles. Go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Preach the gospel. And it's important to understand here, I heard it once said that, you know, oftentimes we see here in Scripture that clearly there is a priority for the Jewish people. But yet God has said, my house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. That it is his intention that the good news of the gospel would, would, would go to the Gentiles. And so don't be offended by the, the fact that as a Gentile, you're, you're second here. It doesn't mean that God loves you any less. It's, and this is the comparison I've often heard, it, uh, heard made, is that it's no different than saying, ladies first. Right? There's, a, there's, a, there's just an, a certain order that's in place. The Jews were first, and from there it goes to the Gentiles. And so those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found. Look at this, both bad and good. Praise God. And so what this now means is as they're bringing people back into this wedding hall now as they've gone into all these different places and brought the bad and the good, the tax collectors and the, and the prostitutes, and it's a motley-looking crew. And it's represented here in this room this morning as well. Are there any of you here that say, yes, I'm good. I deserve that invitation. Thank you for not raising your hand. That would have been awkward, right? No, we don't deserve it. We've considered that recently as well. We don't deserve it. Go back to the, the other parable of the workers in the vineyard, the ones who were there all day and the ones who were there for an hour. Jesus paid them the same. That's His grace. And so here, the king, because he's throwing a celebration, because there's a marriage, and he says, I want all to come. 
He fills the hall with guests, with those who would receive his invitation. And then in in verse 11, when the king came in to see the guests, and you see this happens when when the wedding begins to reach its peak, the king descends to see his guests. He's descended to meet you too, Christian. But in so doing, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And we must understand, to be at the wedding, you must have on a wedding garment. A robe. A sign of respect. A symbol that you belong there. That you are different than those on the outside who declined the invitation. But never fear, because you know, here you, you may be saying, but, but, but I, thought it was, I thought it was come as you are. And indeed it was. As they went in, out to the highways and to the byways and in the fields and all the different places, it was, I don't care who you are, good, bad, you come. But if you receive that invitation and you come, something needs to change. And as they come in, and here's what happened. In the, in the East, the custom was that as they came, they were given a robe. They were given a garment. It was provided for them. A free gift of grace. Nevertheless, Though the robe that they could put on was free, they must receive it and must put it on. And so he said to them in verse 12, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. There was no reason, no justification. He had simply rejected it. Yet there he was professing to be part of the wedding feast, pretending to be like the others, And then the king said in verse 13 to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and lead us in a song as we take communion. And I want us to see here, friends, that it's not about religion. It's not about going to the temple, making your sacrifice, Let me state it differently. It's not about coming here and taking communion and then everything's good. We can just go about our business. The fact is God has so much more. What he says is there is a wedding feast that you have been invited to, but you don't get to come on your terms You don't get to come on your terms. You don't get to come dressed however you'd like. No, there is a special garment that you must put on. And you see, it's the garment of salvation. It's free, but you must receive it. And you do so not just by professing it with your mouth, but in action you receive it and you put it on. You see, our our garment... What we, what we wear naturally, what this man was wearing, Isaiah says, is filthy rags. It's filthy rags. It, it's a pathetic attempt. It's no different than Adam and Eve naked in the bushes trying to hide themselves with fig leaves or whatever else it may have been. No, we come to Jesus and He clothes us with garments of salvation. Garments that Scripture says He has covered us with a robe of righteousness. And that righteousness is Jesus. That's who it is. That's what that garment is. And so we are called to put on Jesus. As 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says, it's the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, that cleanses us from all sin. And so my question this morning for each and every one of you, for those watching online, for those who may watch later on, is friends, do you have on your garments for the wedding?
Revelation tells us of a marriage, of the marriage supper of the Lamb. It tells us of that wedding that will happen, that we are invited to. But Jesus says here in verse 14, many are called, but few are chosen. And if you look at the Greek in this particular verse, it, it, it reads a little differently and it gives us this implication. Many are invited, but not all put on the wedding garment, the robes of righteousness. And how again do we put on that garment? We in obedience surrender our lives and through humble dependence we come to Jesus and we give him our lives. And we recognize as we put on that garment as we are cleansed, as we put on that robe of righteousness, we recognize we are made right because of the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. And as you come forward today, as you're led by our elders and deacons to come forward, as you, as you take of this today, we recognize that, yes, this is a symbol, but it's a symbol of the most powerful thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. That as you take of the bread and as you take of the cup, and as you go back to your seats, I would encourage you here today to just sit and reflect on what it is that he's accomplished for you and consider who you once were, who you now are, and who he's making you to be. That you'd leave this place with a fresh perspective. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.